Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nejda Tsaturgyan. I'm the editor of the tech section here at EVN Report. Today, my guest is Tikran Shahverdian. Tikran is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Robomart. He's also involved in the Gituj Initiative, an advocacy group for advancing the state of science in Armenia. Tikran, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Tikran, I want to start with a little bit of your background. Um, I know you graduated from FizzMath which is uh, one of these specialized schools in Armenia that puts a heavy emphasis on science. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience studying at FizzMath in high school and what is it about that environment that has produced so many founders and, and people in the tech community in Armenia? Yeah, I uh, so from from the sixth grade, I uh, I started studying in FizzMath. Back then it was only from six to ten and actually the whole uh, system was ten years, the school years. So... To be honest, I at some point I didn't want go, want to go there, so my parents kind of forced me a bit, but I'm happy that they did. I think one of the reasons um, that we see some kind of correlation of uh, people uh, who are graduating from this school and um, people who have uh, success in tech and and other fields also is because they put I think high filter at the entrance. They really. Um, test you a lot to be uh, before accepting i mean there's uh, and and it's it's specialized obviously in, in more, more on stem physics and math so uh you you would see more people in these fields but i think also the skills in stem sometimes help people also succeed in other fields one of the things is really the entrance barrier uh and is there an admissions exam yeah yeah it, it changed over time. I remember that uh, when I was uh, just preparing, there were some interesting uh, courses, like for math specifically. And uh, you could go and prepare in, in the school. Like there were teachers from FISMAT school who would work, work with you to prepare for the exams. Mm. And uh, and then for, for people who participated actually in, in these courses, they had like, I think, more chances like in, into getting accepted but then there was also more uh, broader uh, exam for the entrance i don't remember i think maybe i got accepted from the first try from uh, before the broader exam but the uh, exams are actually yeah they have like higher like criteria the, the higher barrier and also then later uh, obviously during the education they have like um, really great teachers there mm-hmm in the school that um, work with you they are also so i had i had really great teachers in math and physics and, and other fields too and i don't want to only focus on this but because this was like physics was the most interesting topic for me space was one my, my biggest passion i would say but it's obviously connected directly to physics and obviously you also need to have some some knowledge in math to be right uh, to be here so i'm not very deep in math i would say there are people who would go to math olympiads and get like medals and stuff i was i was mm-hmm. more focused on physics and astronomy and there was also one uh, one of my i would say uh, great teachers is um Vartanian, who was also doing this um, extracurricular courses for physics and preparing students for international physics olympiad and he uh, a lot of his students uh, got very successful because i mean obviously in order to go to him and it was not like he won't accept you, but yeah. I mean, if you go there, you need to show some progress, and, and your chance you start, of success would become higher. 
Yeah, yeah, and and and, and you can if you really uh, work, if you really are interested, you could learn a lot from him. And mm. I, I would say that uh, I remember there are certain things in physics, like really thinking how a physicist should think about about the nature. I got from him that I learned from him directly. Is there anything about the culture or the model at FISMAT that you think is replicable across the entire public school system in Armenia or anywhere in the world? I'm sure there are, but uh, I'm I can't really name them to be honest. The the main thing, the first thing that I mentioned, right, that you have a higher entry barrier, you can't replicate this, yeah. right, because it's already like it's like filtering out from all the schools uh, who really have the interest or already shown some result, uh, students and accepting them there. Uh, this these are like this is one of the specialized schools, mm-hmm. so you can't really uh, in, in this in this sense you can't really replicate it fully. But I'm sure there are learnings from there that can be. Just I I can't really yeah. <laughs> name them probably. Okay, so after graduating from from Fismat, where'd you go off to do your university studies? So one of my teachers, uh, physics teacher actually, he was like um, mentioning this all the time, like preparing me for for this thought that maybe I should go and study in. Uh, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. It's shortened. It's called FISTEH. Like that's usually usually in the in the region or in post-Soviet area. The university is called. And actually, this teacher that I mentioned, who who had extracurricular uh, courses, he is he himself is graduate of FISTEH. And uh, and then when I started, like also going to his courses at ninth and tenth grades, he also started talking about it. And I kind of got like used to this idea, but I was, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, um, I, I was delaying this decision in a sense. And um, there was this system, I think it's still in place that from post-Soviet area, any, any students who, uh, who are part of the national teams to go to international Olympiads for physics and I think maybe a few other Olympiads too, they can automatically get accepted to the university without exams. Just by participating in the Olympiad? Yeah, just or? being in the national team. You don't even need to win. Wow. So, but but obviously, so the Olympiad happens, I think, mid, mid-summer, somewhere. I forgot the exact dates. Acceptance obviously happens a bit before. So right. you need to tell in advance. And I didn't, I didn't got actually how it should work, I think, or maybe I, I didn't listen well, probably. <laughs> probably they, they told me I didn't listen well. And we were flying, actually. I remember we are in a flight. We are flying to the Olympiad. It was in uh, Bali that year, Indonesia. And we are talking to our teacher, who's who was also the leader of the team. He was one of the people who would take the children to the uh, Olympiad. And he's like, uh, look, I told you. And you should have told me that you want to go there because I would have told them so they could accept you. Hmm. But now the dates have passed already, I said. Okay, what a bummer! Like, probably yeah. <laughs> is this? And then, okay, look, you need to get something from the Olympiad. You need to win probably something, and then we can go because uh, people from the university are also taking the Russian team there, right? Uh, so we can talk to them. I said, okay. So there was uh, some kind of motivation to get some medal. <laughs> I got, uh, I got actually bronze medal uh, from the Olympiad, and. I think for a long time that nobody received that from Armenia uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union. Maybe the first years after the collapse, there were some medals, but then for a longer year, uh, nobody really got medal. So I was, in a sense, the first one from Armenia to get. Later on, people mm-hmm. did much better. We have several gold medals. Even. Right. 
which is great. And uh, this was a, a reason she said, okay, let's go talk to them. If you are really interested in going, let's go talk to them. And we met with the deputy dean of the physics uh, department of the university. He was there also with the Russian team. And he's like, I remember it was very short. Like we came to him, he's like, you dreamed into going to, to MIPT? I said, yeah. He's like, okay, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> and then we went back and um, I got accepted to actually to Yerevan State University. And there was a specialized uh, physics uh, group there, which had like, uh, like more like harder course. Like then they used to pick like people who are really interested in physics and show good results in a separate group. Back then there was a many applicants like mm. these days they don't have it because the interest for physics uh, really declined after they got rid of the program altogether no no there is a physics department but this specialized special group program. is not is not there because there are not so many students and mm. so in order to have a special separate like group for that what was the size of the group back then i remember i think maybe 10 12 i think there so so I got accepted there. Again, they didn't take any exams from me because I got a, a medal from... The, I, I had many also medals from the Armenian National Olympiad. So, and also, also I think, from the international. They didn't actually ask me to get any exams. And I was actually waiting. Is there any news from Moscow about getting accepted? And it was, I think, fifth day, 5th of September, something like already a few days I'm going and studying that Gagik uh, Grigorian called me, our, our instructor from this... Uh, extracurricular group mm -hmm. also took us to Olympiad that look uh, I just got an email from uh, Slabadjanin Slabadjanin is the last name of, of the deputy dean that uh, they managed to get a sep like a extra place basically extra scholarship for you so you can go and study mm -hmm. I was really like uh, okay this changes everything now yeah. I need to go in a, I never lived I never I was outside of Armenia because like two years before that I went to also astronomy but the astronomy olympiad and it was first time but this was like okay i need to go live there now yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's that's how basically i think in few days we got sorted out everything and i and i flew mm -hmm. there so i was a few days late from the first of september but mm -hmm. yeah. started like learning and yeah so you did your undergrad in physics yeah there and then you went to grad school in physics as well yeah so i continued in the same university in the uh, grad school the master got the master's this was uh, probably from the level of the grad school I already started like questioning okay I'm learning all these things why am I doing this I was really like into like learning everything I right. was interested and I was getting high high uh, marks but uh, always there was a question okay like what what's next what am I going to do I had to change few like groups because I didn't like different things like in one places I I was studying, but I was not getting enough scholarships so I can maintain myself. Mm. Uh, and I said, okay, I can't like continue asking for support from my parents. I need to right. do something. So, but it, it threw me in, a, in another direction. I started working in a company. I actually worked in a company called Abbey. You, you probably know, but it's, it's founded by uh, David Yan and uh, Aram Pachanyan is also mm -hmm. uh, vice president there. So um, I worked there for, for a few years. But in parallel, I was I was also doing my masters, and but I saw that I can't really continue. Like if I for really want to uh, advance in like science, I, I need to uh, I need to leave working and find a place where I can really at least get some some scholarship or salary that I can maintain myself. Right. So in the first year of of the PhD, 
studies. I was already accepted in one group. I, I, I understood that I didn't choose this wisely. It's not really interesting for me. And it was a moment I started thinking, I had some, uh, I would say, in a sense, a crisis, like, okay, well, I need to decide yeah. finally what I need to do. It was interesting that I, it was probably the first time I I really started thinking deeply what, what are my interests, mm -hmm. like what is really, what am I passionate really about? Uh, not just like what I want to do now or like where I see the path, it's easy to see where it goes, but what am I passionate about? And I understood that from my childhood, I was really interested in, in space. Mm -hmm. And second, I always loved building things. So it was obvious for me, okay, I, I want to go into uh, space engineering, mm -hmm. aerospace engineering, specifically space. So I started looking into uh, universities in abroad, also in the US, in, in, in Europe. I, I thought I should apply there. It was like uh, uh, winter and all the dates have already passed. Mm. So I was thinking, okay, like I should probably wait for another year. But what I should do for a year? For some reason, I thought that I'm probably, whatever I achieved right now or my, or my topics are in physics. So I probably won't be easily getting into like PhD in, in another topic. Right. Uh, so I said, okay, let me find a place where I can uh, work on, on this topic in Moscow. And I started looking, this time I was, uh, this is very important, I think, for, and I always give this advice to students who are asking me, like, should I continue this topic or not? Yeah. The most important thing when it comes to PhD level and also probably in the master's level, topic is obviously very important, but uh, I would say more important than who's your advisor and mm. how well you get along with him. So because I had few experiences before where I uh, went into some group, scientific group, just because of the topic, the mm -hmm. name of the group, and then I started working with people and understood, okay, this is not the place I want to be. Uh, that experience like forced me to re completely rethink and come from the perspective, who am I going to work to? Who's going to be my advisor? And I started really interviewing myself in a sense, like people who are in the in the topic uh, obviously, they were interviewing me too, uh, but for me, it was important, like, who am I going to work to? Mm -hmm. I even talked to some of the students of the advisor to see, like, how, what, what, what feedback they The work culture is. And I'm always, like, this is one of the things I always advise to students who want to uh, learn, go to, to PhD or even master's when, when there is advisor. That's one of the key things. Mm -hmm. And I found an advisor in a, a space research institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences, so one of the things uh, was important, I didn't want to get into uh, the special um, companies that were doing the engineering part and they required some kind of clearance and stuff. Mm. Like because military like, clearance. Yeah, 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 because it's like space is always considered dual use right. and, and it is in a sense, uh, in, in many cases. Uh, I didn't want to go there. I didn't, I didn't want to get any clearance, obviously. And I went into scientific institute, which is just doing research. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it, it, we, we, we worked there in, on a space plasma physics. And we uh, designed instruments for measuring space plasma and getting the data. But we didn't work specifically on the spacecraft. We just like worked with the uh, company who was building the spacecraft, how to put our instrument on their platform and then launch. So I, w I worked on several projects there and it was uh, really interesting. I learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, my thesis was the topic. I tried one topic quickly, but it didn't work out. It was about 
the comet's uh, tail, mm-hmm. and my my advisor had instrument that he put on on one of the space missions uh, previously, and he wanted us to see if we can get some new insights from the data that he collected, mm-hmm. but we quickly understood that there is not enough data to get something. And we switched to uh, Venus Magnetosphere, which is like very interesting topic where there was a lot of data from from before and we started seeing some interesting uh, questions there that are not answered yet. And I started working on it. So after uh, two years, we had some progress. But in parallel, I was also working on, on some instruments for other missions. Mm-hmm. I was part of a lunar lander program. It was really exciting. But uh, when the, every time we saw how the deadlines were shifting for the Russian space yeah. program, I, at some point I got really... I already saw that this might... Yeah. And, and until now, they haven't launched. So that was <laughs> 2000, 2012, I left. So uh, ten years the ago, institute, yeah, ten years ago, and they still haven't launched. So you so. made a good decision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you get a lot of engineering experience there? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. because our instruments had to work in a uh, in a space environment, and I was a, a project manager for for two instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two instruments. A bit different, and it was very interesting. One was uh, space plasma, yeah. basically when you detect the charged particles. The other one was, and it's actually very interesting. I had to also dive deep into understanding this topic too, uh, for space dust. Hmm. So small interplanetary or interstellar particles that are in our solar system, and there are basically two groups. One is interplanetary, which is uh, rotating around the sun. And the other group is interstellar, so something that came out of our solar system. Mm. And you can differentiate them by their speeds, actually, because uh, due to of the like Kepler laws, you can understand if the speed is like above the what is it second cosmic speed, yeah, for the solar system, then it, it's it means it came from outside of the solar mm. system. Uh, so and it inter- and and uh, we were designing an instrument that can actually first of all measure the speed and by that differentiate between two groups, and then also measure where it came from, mm-hmm. but also measure what's uh, what's the composition, what elements are right. in the in the uh, small part of dust mm-hmm. uh, dust, and then you can do okay. Uh, we can see that whatever is coming from outside has this composition, right. and whatever is inside our planetary system has another composition. And also, uh, there was a um, hypothesis that whatever we see there is actually remains from the time that our solar system formed. So we can get a really good insights of wow. what was happening during Early the formation of the, of the solar system. It was really exciting, and I was designing the, the that instrument. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to work with instruments right. uh, that need to work in the space. In, in space, yeah. So these days you're you're more known for your work with robots on Earth. You're the founder of RoboMart, but before RoboMart, uh, you built a company called RoboCV. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the founding of that company and what it did? Yeah. So uh, when I left uh, in 2012, the institute actually at first, so the, the, there's like in between a few things happened. I, in 2012, I got uh, actually a bit before I got accepted to International Space University. Is a very interesting uh, institution, and a lot of people from all over the world come and and study there. Where they is have, it? It's it's headquartered in in France, Strasbourg. They have their master's program for a year, but they started initially for from this uh, short uh, course or program, two months program, very like compact and and very 
intensive. Uh, it's called Space Studies Program, mm -hmm. SSP, and uh, and in 2012 it was 25th kind of anniversary of this program, and because it was a like anniversary, they uh, planned to do it uh, in in Florida in, with the Kennedy Space Center near the wow. Cape Canaveral, uh, and like a lot of people from all all over the world, like there were I think about 130 participants and like many nationalities there and. For two months, we had to study together. We had to uh, go to all these like uh, field trips together, yeah. do some projects, have fun. Also, like yeah. those very energetic mm -hmm. like uh, environment. Oh yeah, and also just before flying there, uh, it coincided that the week before there was a meeting of the teams in in, in Washington D.C. Uh, of Google Lunar X Prize competition. Mm. And I was, while I was in the Space Research Institute, I was also part of this team that was from Russia, the only team from Russia called Selenahod. And I, as I was going to go to this program, I went also to this uh, team summit to represent our team. And when I, when we finished, it was uh, like very interesting program. We can, I can talk about it more, but uh, uh, I got a lot of like connections, learnings, and um, uh, also we did some interesting projects and uh when when i went back to to moscow i said okay i wanna i wanna leave the institute and by that time we also managed to fundraise some amount of investment for selenachod the uh, the lunar rover basically project and it was I a project to send a rover to the moon yeah wow. yeah so the the whole competition was called google lunar x prize it was uh, managed by XPRIZE Foundation, uh, which still is there and uh, does a lot of uh, other projects. But the prize money was put by Google, mm. 30 million prize uh, money. And the main prize was, I think, $20 million. Whoever lands there successfully and at least uh, manages to move 500 meters. And there were like some secondary prizes after that. How were you so, supposed to launch? Like, were you supposed to build your own launch vehicle or...? That was open, like, do whatever you want. If oh, okay. you want to, like, uh, pay for a launch or do yourself, I mean, obviously it's easier to just to probably pay for it. Right. Uh, or, like, ride share with someone. Let's say uh, there's a government program and, and you just uh, collaborate with them and you build the rover. Uh, it goes there. It also does some scientific mission for the Right, for, for the, the government. So we were actually trying to get into these lunar programs of hmm. of, of Russia to uh, to get there with the rover because they had lenders. We said, okay, let's also have a rover there. Right. So uh, we managed to fundraise uh, some private investment, and um, when I get back, I got back to to Moscow. I said, okay, I'm leaving the institute, uh, and I'll go join full time this this team. And and we started working, but about like a year after, I understood that uh, like doing private like space really in in Russia is really hard, especially like lunar projects. I mean, it was just starting at least a more uh, traditional um, space business like satellites or uh, remote sensing, these kind of things. A few of our team started uh, working on before uh, before this like. Uh, started working on um, a robotics project mm -hmm. and the company actually was called RoboCV. And at that time, there was still question, okay, what what should the company focus on? And after a year, I decided to uh, to leave Zelenachod and and I, I started talking to the to the guys who were in, um, in RoboCV. 
And there was like moment of like pivoting basically the company, uh, like re in a sense like relaunching or focusing on specific yeah. things. And and together we decided okay let's let's focus on uh, warehouse robotics. Hmm. So uh, and at that time we got a contract from uh samsung actually to automate some of their processes in their warehouses in 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 russia uh, in kaluga region and that's how basically we kick-started this, this project i remember for three months we were living in in kaluga region we rented a, a house there like uh, 15 minutes away from their warehouse yeah. the manufacturing plant and we would go there and basically after their shift ended about 5 p.m yeah we would start working actually developing our product like right. in, in the warehouse yeah. in the actual environment and it i think it took about three months like in the end we finished we launched it it's it's i think until now it's still working there yeah. when you say warehouse robots what are you talking about so this this uh first product was about taking it's like a uh imagine like a small electric car that has this line of small um i don't know kind of a like dollies Hmm. Uh, on the back okay. which are connected to each other and you have components uh, that need to go from a warehouse to the manufacturing lines so that the people can take and right. it goes to manufacturing line and all this process was done manually like somebody was driving this car so they wanted to automate it so that it can automatically go there stop and then uh, they will unload all these like things and then mm -hmm. they, somebody will uh, give him a command to go back hmm. And then there there are people in the warehouse who are prepared another chain of uh, dollies that yeah. needs to be uh, connected and it can go back. And these are autonomous. Yeah. So we made them autonomous and they were like driving, basically driverless, driving themselves, self-driving. This is 2012? This is 2013. Hmm. Still very early for autonomous yeah. systems. Yeah. Uh, so I obviously like Google's yeah. project was already there for, and, and it's it's actually very different environment. The closed warehouse environment is very different from what's on the streets because right. it's controlled. It's controlled. Uh, it it still has a lot of uh, chaotic parts there, but also the regulations are different. Right, and I would argue that it's much easier to do in the warehouses than uh, yeah than in the on the actual streets. And then after that, we started working on forklifts. Mm -hmm. Basically, the it's actually called pallet truck. Uh, it's a small again electric uh, car. Imagine that can that have these forks that can take the palletized, yeah, yeah. And, and move them. And uh, we worked like uh, pretty long, I guess, like two years maybe after that on that. And then mm -hmm. we told this time we were working with a company called FM Logistic. It's a one of the largest or maybe the largest European, or I don't remember the exact size, but they are very big in, in uh, third-party logistics. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had their like warehouses in Russia and they wanted automating this um, several parts of their yeah. inter internal logistics, I would say. So we again spent a lot of time on this, like we automated and finally it's, it's uh, started working. Mm -hmm. uh, and we could even take uh, pallets from the second level if they were not so high on the where on the racks in the warehouses so the the issues with the company were that um so there were three co-founders uh, that we were working on on the robo cv and we i think uh, obviously part of uh biggest part is our mistake that we 
relied too much on the uh, Russian market. Mm. We thought that we'll just start here, we'll take uh, all the market there, and then we'll go outside. But to be honest, there was not much of a market there. Then there were big problems like um, people's labor is uh, very cheap in Russia. So Right. And though we had much cheaper product than you can get in, in Europe or in in, uh, in US, but still the return of invest, investment for when they were calculating these companies, it was longer than three, the best case, three years hmm. uh, or even five years. And nobody in Russia was planning yeah. longer than three years, <laughs> five years. And most of them, they were not planning longer than three years. Yeah. So it was hard to sell really in Russia. And and, and uh, I think our mistake was that we should have started like uh, moving our uh, business part, at least uh, operations uh, like to Europe or US much earlier. You think it would, it would have worked in the US? Yeah. And also all the, obviously 2013, uh, all the geopolitical situations started right. like worsening yeah. with Russia, right? And and that also uh, we were raising actually some investments, and uh, we couldn't actually uh, get. There were there was interest from from foreign investors, but then it like stopped basically. Right. And when the time came that we needed, we actually had a good technology. We needed to get uh, another funding to continue. We couldn't get it inside Russia. I mean, it's it's hard. It's harder. Right. And the international investors were not interested. So this is at some point in 2017. I understood, okay, the company can can survive. Actually, we tr- we tried several like uh, ways. We actually even tried two out of three co-founders. We decided together to maybe create some kind of spin-off and continue in another way. But then uh, it didn't work out. So. Uh, I I understood that the company is not it's going to probably survive yes mm-hmm. but it's not going to be like a huge uh, success like a startup right. story right uh, uh, so in 2017 I left and I uh, decided to to come to US with uh, with my ex-wife back then and we came to New York at first I was looking actually I was really burned with with my <laughs> experience with my first startup I was very tired yeah and this is this is one of the things also that I learned and now with my current companies I I really try to allocate some time to really do something else it's not it's not about like just resting rest is also I need to at least rest rest one day a week but also do some other things that right. that can really that are meaningful that are in, uh, important hobbies and I think it's called like active resting, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, if you're reading or if, I don't know, if jujitsu is your thing or something, something to take your mind off what your primary work is. So eventually you built the company that you're working on now, Robomart. Can you t- what's, the, what's the story with Robomart? What's the founding story of it? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was I was in, in New York, actually, and um, I was looking for having, maybe joining some company and having yeah. some... Being in more like environment where I don't need to be uh, in a place of founder where we need to hustle all the time. And I was obviously interested in similar industry like warehouse automation, but more I was interested in self-driving cars companies. Uh, So I was looking into different companies, but because at the moment I didn't have a working visa, it was really hard to get into this company. So the only option usually with this situation that one of the uh, ways to go is to uh, see what startups are out there because startups are more flexible in, in that sense. 
and they can work with you to get the uh, working visa. After looking sometime, first of all, uh, yeah, I forgot. So uh, I, I was thinking also to go back to the PhD and oh, finally okay. do my aerospace engineering PhD. Right. So I applied to several schools, the, the top ones in the US. And while I was waiting for the answer, I said, okay, let me check what companies are there. And then while, while I was waiting, I, I've, I was checking the news, reaching out to people. I found about Robomart. So it was a concept back mm-hmm. then. So my, my current co-founders, they took a small model, like uh, really a mock-up into CES in uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. And they were pitching this idea basically to, to the public and also to investors that like stores that can come to you. Yeah. And I found it in the news. I said, oh, this is really interesting because first of all, I mean, the, the, the vision until now and back then was that it's going to be self-driving. Right. And, and first of all, like technically, okay, I thought that this is something that fits my, my experience. But second, I also, it, it was interesting for me because I saw that you can, some, something I would say personal, like because I, I grew up in Armenia and I always had access to this like fresh, really high quality produce. Right. And then I, later on, I noticed that I lost that access basically yeah. when I went to big city and and I couldn't, one of the things I always tell, like people, people think I'm focusing too much on it. I really love the like this tasty big tomatoes in Armenia. It's so funny you say that because I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I hated tomatoes in Canada. But in Armenia, I like tomatoes. Yeah, like the so taste the, is like it's like a completely different. Yeah, fruit it's like this like big, uh, even not not yeah. many, many uh, big ones, like maybe even middle size. But yeah, that you could like. Eat like an apple, yeah, like I know, taking yeah. your hand and just like yeah. you don't cut it, you just eat it like <laughs> a, like an apple, yeah. like fully, like everything. Yeah, and I used to do, do it all the time when I was a kid, and then I and I noticed that I can't get really good tomatoes. I mean, okay, they are they are good. It's not like completely nothing, but yeah. they are not really so tasty. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, okay, uh, this might be a good way to get the local farmers' goods to people, right. make them more yeah. accessible. It's like I, a farmer's market on wheels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, one of the ways how yeah. can this work is that when you have local farmers, you can shorten the logistic chain basically because one of the reasons we have this uh, produce which is which can uh, stay fresh for a longer time but mm-hmm. <laughs> tastes much, much right. worse than yeah. the really good ones is because you have bigger logistic chains and you right. want the produce to to not spoil until it gets to the consumers. Right, but if you, if you shorten it, you can get like much, much uh, fresh stuff to the uh, consumers. So th- that was like two parts of the yeah. things that got really me interested. Uh, but the company was obviously my, my co-founders, current co-founders, and they were in, in uh, Bay Area. So I was in, in New York. And then I, I it coincided because I also was talking to one of my friends from Moscow. He was moving to US to become a CTO in a company which is also in a self-driving space. And... I talked to him. He said, "Look, I uh, I need really people who who are like uh, who can uh, work on different things and can understand on a system level, who yeah. can have a broader knowledge base and can dive into different areas. So come, come, uh, I would like you to join us." I said, "Okay, I have probably maybe two options. Let me go to Bay Area and see where I see myself fitting better." I flew to yes uh, to to Bay Area. Uh, I spent a week at my friend's place. My friend, who actually I met in ISU in the International Space yeah. University, 
who is actually from Canada also. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, really good friend. And and it was great. I messaged him, hey, man, I'm coming there. He said, come on, you can stay with us. <laughs> I didn't even ask him. Yeah. He's like, you can come and stay. I said, thanks, man, really. It's uh, yeah. really helpful. So I stayed with them a week. I, I talked to people. And then finally, uh, I decided to, to join the Robomart. And, and there were like two reasons. Basically, I saw that there... It, I can my experience is really applicable uh, applicable and my co-founders they they are not technical so I saw that and I always like to think from a systems level and this yeah. is something that comes from my experience in space right there is a discipline called systems engineering and this is one one of the things I'm really interested on in looking into on the on the systems from from this like uh, interconnected subsystems perspective that right. you need to really design and then and then make it so for me it was it was a system and i had some experience with at least parts of it right so that was the technical part and also the emotional part which mm -hmm. i really understood this is going to be great in my friend's uh company in other place it was a bit bigger like more advanced stage and uh it was self-driving it was a um it is it is still it's still there there it's a company that uh, creates technology for teleoperations like remotely hmm. operating oh, okay and and there I could get obviously more competitive salary, but less ownership, I would right. say, and and less. It was and that was not the most uh, important thing for me. I couldn't understand really what were my responsibilities there if I go there. So here I decided to join Ali and Emad. Also, at that moment, uh, basically we joined almost the same time. He. Obviously joined a bit a bit earlier. He, mm -hmm. he was he was not full time. He was helping Ali to with like few months maybe, maybe before. Actually, Robomart's idea is uh, much older, and it's the idea came to Emad, not not to Ali. my co-founder who's who's the CEO Ali. Fourteen years ago, wow. he was he thought about this because he was working in a uh, ice cream uh, division of of uh, Unilever and. He thought that what if we recreate this ice ice cream truck concept for for everything else, mm. not only ice cream. But back then you you didn't have phones, like it was only like basically the right. <laughs> you don't have mobile you, phones. Yeah, yeah you didn't. We didn't no have the mobile phones. Mm. So uh, so they couldn't launch it inside the company, and um, and then later on when Ali 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 actually was uh, in UK for about ten years, and then he came to US, and he thought that maybe it's it's the good great time to start working on this yeah. idea and about the same uh, time they, they they presented the concept i found out about yeah. it i came there i met them and and i decided to, to join. Yeah, really join and then yeah. let's 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 create this so was this around 2018 yeah this was beginning of 2018 okay actually i found about rob martin so cs it in january right, right. So i found about in the news about it and then i think february or march i, I flew to Bay Area and stayed there. Yeah. If my understanding is correct, Robomart essentially is um, you have an app where you can, in certain areas right now in Los Angeles, you can call the Robomart car, which is an autonomous car that doesn't have a driver, uh, to come to your area where you are. And it opens up and it's essentially a mini grocery store. And you can buy produce or other, other grocery items from it, right? Partially okay. true. So it, uh, it's actually we have a driver at the moment. 
Oh. And there are several things that if you have seen, so in 2018, we created in, 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 in June, we launched, uh, we created and, and uh, started like working and demoing and also preparing our driverless roadmap full scale. Okay. Uh, so that's not launched yet. Uh, no, that's that's not okay. so. That's our vision how it's going to be. So we created it, and we actually were going with the. Um, we wanted to go like with uh, like this wide front, and there is the business innovation side of like this new way of of getting the goods, and also the self driving part. We also wanted to push that ahead. But uh, when time passed, we understood that people are seeing several risks there. I mean, obviously, every every startup is a risky venture. And when you have investors looking and, and um, uh, assessing, like, should they invest or not, there are many factors that they consider. And we saw that uh, there are few risks that people see. I mean, self-driving cars are still, the tech is still not there, right? So, to be completely autonomous. And- yeah, so uh, we, we see other players doing, and but it's still not not fully there. And, and even back then, obviously, even, even less advanced. Uh, one of the risks they saw was uh, the... Uh, the tech risk. Second was the regulations risk because yeah. the regulations were still advancing, and the third one is actually the business model. Like, is this really something that people would like to use? So, in our mind, I mean, it was like, I mean, I, I'm sure self-driving tech is going to be there. Regulations are going to be uh, for it's that, a, and, and the business model yeah. we 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 are sure is going yeah. to work. And it's just and a matter of right time. now. But again, that was back then, and we didn't have much proof. Right, and it's really. It's very counterintuitive to many people, actually, that why why should this way of, of shopping work? So at some point, we decided, okay, it's important to, especially when the COVID started, we decided, okay, now it's time actually to quickly launch. Yeah. So we said, okay, let's let's uh, put aside other risks, like just park them for a moment and focus on actually launching the the business and scaling and, and, and getting the first, like, proof points and, yeah. then, and then scaling. So we created this roadmap right now, which is uh, actually driven, but I was actually very adamant about that, that there should not be any interaction of the driver with the customer. So the driver is just there for driving and they should not even like talk. And we tinted actually the windows so they don't even interact with each other. So for a consumer, it should be as if it's like, self-driving it so worked fully automated yeah, you fooled me because i when i was looking at the videos i really thought it was autonomous yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so. i mean the, there was no it intention worked, to yeah. fool but the, the thing <laughs> no, is right, that yeah. we want people to have this fully automated yeah. experience and later on i mean when we switch to fully self-driving that was will be much right. if, if we started like putting some responsibilities on the driver to do something right. else uh, first of all it would kill the the whole user experience second it would have been harder to switch right yeah so that's how we we decided to go, and um, we started actually quickly working. And uh, there were like a lot of stories. Like we we got accepted actually to Hux, which is in China, and it's the biggest hardware accelerator in in the world. And we were supposed to go there and and work on prototyping uh, our RoboMarts. Yeah. But we were supposed to fly there in January or February two thousand twenty. Good thing you didn't. <laughs> no, we couldn't. It's right, you couldn't. We, yeah. <laughs> we couldn't yeah, because yeah. Uh, I remember that moment that we were planning how right. we are going to go to Shenzhen, and and then and then I saw in the news there's this like news about some virus in, in China, <laughs> and I was talking to my co-founder like, guys, have you seen this? Like, there's some virus. Yeah. Like, it's fine. It'll quickly solve. Yeah. I said, 
I'm starting to get worried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. yeah, obviously it's uh, we are laughing about it. it's not it's not good whatever yeah. happened, but it uh, it really made it much harder for us. I mean, how can you do hardware accelerator remotely? remotely? <laughs> yeah, you can't. But it forced us to really think creatively. What are we going to do here? And we like tweaked it, like uh, changed the whole concept, like the system, how we are going to mix as simple as possible. Uh, and it was few iterations. Uh, so we already decided, okay, we are going to take a, a, a van and we are going to just like put our, our system it. inside and then launch it. And then I, I, I finally came, I remember I was, I was in Armenia, I finally came to US in uh, July, July, yeah. And I was sitting and fully working, preparing everything with our partner in Bay Area. And and then in three and a half months, I think I was there working on it. And then uh, in September, the uh, war in Karabakh started in Artsakh. I couldn't really stay remotely. I thought I need yeah. to go there and, 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 and be there with my people and see how I can help. So I talked to my co-founders. I said, look. Look, guys, I, I, I can't, I need to go. So yeah. Look, if it's, it's what's your, what your like heart wants, then we are fully supporting you. Uh, let's, we'll figure out how to really uh, do this, even if you are remote. And then after that, I started thinking, okay, if I'm flying now, what I need to do really so that the work doesn't stop. Yeah. In California. And this is, again, this is one of the situations when I thought we simplified as much as we could. But then this situation, like, forced to think even more creatively. Like, how can we simplify it even more? Yeah. And, like, in 30 minutes, I remember I was talking to, to Ali, like, okay, what we can do? And in, like, 30 minutes, like, we, over the phone, he was in L.A., I was in, in Bay Area. We discussed everything. We already knew how we are going to finish the Robomart in three days. Wow. And we did. Like, in three yeah. days, it was like a hackathon. Like, <laughs> Ali, like, just next day, he drove to Bay Area. Yeah. And we talked to our partner there who was working on a mechanical, uh, mechanical ma making the mechanical parts. And we put everything together and in three days it was ready. It was working. Yeah. And he drove uh, the first Robomart to LA. Wow. And I, uh, in a few hours, I just packed our things because uh, I didn't need to be there anymore. So I just packed everything that we had there, threw after him to, to LA too. Totally. And then in a few days I, I flew to Armenia. And then, like, for a long time, for 11 months, actually, I was remotely working. I mean, it was going forward. But so what happened next? Uh, we had the first Rob Mart in December in 2020. Uh, we did our alpha, basically alpha launch. We had, like, really a uh, small number of peoples, and we tested with them. Mm -hmm. Not our friends, like, more like friends of friends. Yeah. So it's not, like, fully biased. To get more honest answers, yeah. feedback. Like for three weeks, I think we did uh, this test and it was really great. We got yeah. some really great results and also feedback, like what we need to make better. And then after that, we uh, started implementing all the feedback. We worked on uh, a few other things that we were postponing and a lot of advancements in the software. And then the second RoboMart already was, was made during this time. And in uh, June in 2021, uh, we launched the beta, invite-only beta mm -hmm. that we, uh, in, in LA. So we had already two RoboMarts, uh, uh, snacks and, and pharmacy. And with our partner, uh, Reef, we, uh, we launched it and started operating. 
I what was remote, pharmacy? I, I was remote all this time. You were remote the whole time. <laughs> yeah, wow. when we launched yeah. both Alpha and, and Beta, yeah. I was not there. But uh, so I worked on the software. We even managed to change something in the hardware while I was remote. And it's really interesting how uh, we managed all these things and it worked. Yeah. I, mean, I remember I was, uh, we changed part of the system there. We shipped it to me. I yeah. tested it, all the software, and then we had another copy of that here i asked them and they, they put it together and yeah. then i connected over like wow. remotely i updated the software yeah. and then it worked we figured it out this is one thing for you know like a, a SaaS company or some sort yeah. of software company to be working remotely but for a hardware company that revolve inquire needs serious engineering like physical engineering i would have thought that would have been much more difficult remotely it, it is difficult but yeah. uh one thing is uh we need we need to be clear we are not fully hardware company we have hardware component it is a part of like our i would say proprietary system but it's not uh it's not you don't build very it from complex. scratch or, yeah it's yeah. uh it's it's a things that are manageable even 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 remotely, right? And we had people here. I mean, obviously, we had engineers, so I don't, I didn't need to be fully here. But parts of there, are, there are a few things which is uh, I'm working myself hands yeah. on. I would say so. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's that's not that's not as hard as it might seem. It is hard, but we we figured out. And uh, one one interesting thing that uh, when I got to US in I think September last year. And first time I tried myself the working system, like that's out there in the yeah. in the in the wild. <laughs> Even I was not expecting how cool this experience is. Yeah. Until I tried myself, though I built the whole thing, but until I tried right. myself, you saw your own baby. <laughs> like, I was really okay. This was really smooth. I just yeah. like tapped the button, something came in. I just like went outside. Yeah. I took it. I went back, and it's like done. Like in. 10 minutes didn't pass. You don't swipe a card to pay or anything yeah. at all. I mean, this yeah. is really like different. It's yeah. really much more in, uh, convenient and, yeah. and, and easy. So what parts of, are you guys still just in LA? Yeah. So it's um, one zone right now. We we paused right now. We are relaunching okay. because uh, we are, so with, with our current application that we have, uh, you don't see the merchants there. Okay. You don't see the, their storefronts. You see Robomart snacks, pharmacy, and other types. So we are completely moving into marketplace where we have different like brands with their storefronts. Yeah. I don't know, let's say some some brands, pharmacy, some other brands, ice cream, yeah. some other brands, uh, groceries. And um, the, the consumer can can choose which which store. Even if it's like there are two different brands with their groceries, they can choose what, what they want and mm -hmm. they can search you. And, uh, so that's that's how we are going to relaunch, and it's uh, so we are a marketplace. We don't own the inventory. Okay. So that's you partner with uh, yeah. companies that are selling groceries and pharmacy products. Actually, like uh, there are several categories that we see uh, will start, but eventually we think that we we've got uh, in uh, like really strong intention to launch Robmart with electronics. Right. Yeah. But it's really where we. Uh, it's it's great. We would like to have this, uh, but at the moment our focus is more on like snacks, pharmacy that we had, or uh, cafes, mm -hmm. like f some kind of food that that's already prepared, like sandwiches. Yeah, and yeah, stuff. yeah, or something that you can just heat up and eat. Right. Uh, this kind of foods we actually have already contract 
mm-hmm. company that booked uh, RoboMarts for this. Uh, ice cream is very, very big interest for ice cream, actually. Yeah. Uh, You're reinventing the ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on demand right. and much faster. Yeah. Uh, Same music or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, we might we might do something. Yeah. Like I think there's also a few other types of RoboMarts. But again, this is, uh, now we are uh, working with the merchants. Like, what, what do you want to put there? And and it's up to them actually to put the, the prices, to to work on the selection. Yeah. And it's their storefront. So we are just just a marketplace. And how many vehicles do you have deployed now? We have right now two vehicles and working on adding more, like several dozens that we already nice <laughs> signed the yeah. contract mm-hmm. on the autonomous part. Is that something you guys are actively working on? Uh, it's uh, going slowly, not not actively. The focus is on on really scaling this proposition. The beauty of the model is that we don't need actually the self driving tech to be profitable. Right. So this is a completely new way. The, the first new way of, of shopping since e-commerce. Like today, you have two ways, right? You go either to store or buy online and somebody delivers to you. So store hailing, as yeah. we call it, is the third way of shopping. Yeah. And it's uh, it has, it's not just a small difference with, with delivery. There's a fundamental difference here. It's uh, much more convenient for consumers and there are, uh, I would say like three differences than uh, from the delivery. There's obviously also difference from from going to the store. First, there is no basket creation. Mm-hmm. This is one of the biggest friction points for consumers. So usually, when when uh, e-commerce talks about delivery times, they talk only about delivery. They don't count in the basket creation time for the consumer, which is uh, in a sense painful and it yeah. takes a lot of time. By basket creation, you mean going online, picking all the stuff yeah, you yeah, want. Yeah, creating and, your yeah. virtual basket and yeah. then paying for it. Mm-hmm. The creation of the basket, right. paying might be easy. Second, it's much faster. Like uh, we, uh, This is one of the things we wanted to prove in our uh, beta, and we got, on average, 9 minutes, fi- 9 minutes, 15, 15 seconds, I think, more exactly, from the moment the user opened the application yeah. till the moment they got the products on their hands. Mm-hmm. So the full experience for the consumer is on average like nine minutes. Wow. So if I'm in one of your service areas, I pull out the app, yeah. I put in my order, and nine minutes in nine minutes the van pulls up. No, it comes a bit faster and then oh, I take maybe it take uh, another minute or something. Okay, cool. Uh, and then you are done to shop. The, uh, the products are in your hand. This whole cycle is on average nine minutes. Wow. So that's actually was our assumption initially. That's uh, how what we put in our models. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put even a bit, a bit bigger number. Yeah. So it's good that we have less number. Yeah. So that um, even if we scale and some things, that's yeah. we are we are still going to be in a good shape. And the third thing is that for several for certain categories of of uh, products, specifically and especially for fresh produce. Mm-hmm. people want to choose themselves yeah yeah because you look at the apples and everyone has a method of picking what which one of the apples they want to take and stuff and statistics yeah. here and this is actually one of the biggest chunks of, of e-commerce uh, not in general like market like i think in u.s the groceries are one uh, 800 billion dollars market wow. only in, in u.s and and we were checking the statistics before even like from the beginning we started that 
only less than 3% happens online. So with of all these shopping. like advancements in, in yeah. delivery and e-commerce, people still majority, like overwhelming yeah. majority goes to store. And there were like many uh, surveys why people do this. And the number one reason is because people want to choose themselves. Yeah. That's why they don't, don't use delivery. And even we were checking the statistics during COVID when people either were like, I don't know, forced or, or like preferably they would like to Order. get something delivered. Yeah. Uh, we were seeing at the, the, the height, uh, the peak of the COVID that maybe about 20 or like 30% would order online, but still majority of people would go to store, even in this situation. Yeah. It means how important this is for the consumer. Yeah. I mean, for this, you either need to go to store or hail a Robomart. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and hail a Robomart is much more convenient. It's much more convenient, much more easier. I'm, I want to talk to you, since you are in the space, I know you guys aren't doing it right now. I want to talk to you a little bit about the state of autonomous systems today. So I was visiting my friends in Irvine last week, and they live on the UC Irvine campus. And they have these little um, small robots that do food delivery from restaurants on campus. And I hadn't seen these before. So I moved to Armenia about two and a half years ago, and obviously we don't have them there. One of the interesting things was as they cross the street, they stop in the middle where the divider is. And they wait until it is so safe to cross that they can easily cross. They can easily take, you know, five, six minutes to cross mm. the street. And at times they'll get stuck there for 10, 15, 20 minutes until there's no cars coming and then eventually they can come out. So this seems like a fundamental, um, I don't know if it's an infrastructure issue or if the software just needs to be so cautious because of the regulations or whatnot. But for a long time we kept hearing about um, – autonomous is here or you know it's two years away it's been two years away for a long time now what is the state of autonomous vehicle technology today and where do you think we'll be in the realistically in the coming five years i think it's the technology in general if you don't uh, focus on different players it's advancing very fast yeah but if you check f first of all uh, we need to uh, separate these sideway robots from from the actual self-driving cars on the right. road are completely different systems. Right. I mean, they have common things the same way they have common things with the warehouse robots, yeah. but the actual challenges are really, really different. Right. I mean, the the roads, the vehicles on the roads, they are like dangerous. I right. Mean, these robots are, worst case, your yeah, lunch gets ruined. Yeah, yeah. but they, they can also hurt people, obviously, but it's not as, as, uh, as serious, serious yeah. as, as a big, like a ton yeah. car coming yeah. to you at the high <laughs> yeah. speed, right? Um, even if it's low speed, so if we if we talk about sideway robots, the, even there, it's um, it's still in a, it's still not there. I think it's still it's a maybe kind of a known secret in the industry that a lot of these robots actually are teleoperated. Oh, really? Yeah. And they still wait 10 minutes to cross the street. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they probably have some of them, some are part of autonomy, yeah. but they they tend to switch a lot to, to the uh, teleoperated drivers. And they are very slow, and I mean, yeah. I'm not going to focus on like how really quick they can uh, deliver things. That's, that's another part. But if we come to self-driving cars, we have seen uh, that like maybe uh, five years ago, there was like this hype about it. Everybody was investing, and then we saw some 
consolidations of yeah. some companies going vast uh, and uh, people moving to other companies. Yeah. Um, so we have seen that and there are right now uh, still a lot of players in the, in the space. Probably the leaders, I would say, there are a few companies out of what's on the public, right? Because some companies might be keeping it uh, right. confidential, but I think it's more or less coincidence than right. what you see on the public. So obviously, uh, I don't want to compare them, but at least I would say three companies that I know that are really uh, leading in our part of the world. I mean, obviously, there's also a lot of happening in China, let's say. It's uh, Tesla, it's Waymo, it's Cruise. Right. There is a big difference between Tesla's approach and Cruise plus Waymo approach. Right. Obviously, they also have differences, but uh, conceptually, uh, Tesla is a different approach. Yeah. And we see that uh, Waymo and Cruise, they are testing it a lot in Bay Area, right? Uh, they are actually... Uh, launched in certain areas even their like taxi service uh, when I was in Barry I could see a lot like usually in South Bay you would see a lot of Waymo cars in yeah. San Francisco you would see a lot of cruise cars and, and it's when you see the cruise car is it a it's driverless but there's someone in the passenger seat right like the cruise employee at or? that time when, when I was uh, more often there like I haven't been there probably consistently for last two years I uh, I don't remember seeing without drivers. Okay. Uh, again, this is not the person who's actually driving. It's, right. It's, it's a safety driver. Monitoring. Safety driver, yeah. yeah. I've seen them then uh, getting the 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 Steering wheel, wheel. Uh, grabbing the wheel. But usually, even even when they are not actually driving, they tend to keep their hands closed because right. they need yeah. to be uh, attentive. Right. If something happens, right. they, they grab it quickly. But I think they they have come a long way, and they are really showing some great progress yeah. in the fields where they are operating. I'll talk a bit about Tesla too and then come about general challenges as I think. Oh, and, and I mean, obviously, we've also seen the the incident and the uh, tragic incident with Uber. Right. right? And actually, uh, I don't know if you have seen there's a show going on about Uber's history. I really yeah. recommend it watching. Um, so coming to Tesla. So Tesla's approach is, is uh, I would say, radically different. Again, the end goal is, is self-driving cars, but it's different from how they approach the technology, but also the business side of it. Mm -hmm. So obviously Tesla is like, I mean, full cameras only, Yeah. Uh, starting with the level two technology on the uh, level two self-driving, not self-driving fully, level two, autonomy, level two of autonomy on the highways, like as a driver assisting technology, and then working towards advancing it. Yeah. Waymo and Cruise take another approach, like directly, we need to get to level four. There's also level five, that's that's another story, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about it, I'll say a few words. But So there's like philosophy is different on, on how we get there and also what sensors we are using. So Waymo's approach is that uh, we need different sensors, also Cruise, like LiDARs, cameras, and other yeah. ultrasound the radars tesla is even removing radars right Cameras camera only computer vision that's risky but still also uh, i think Musk's approach is that uh, it also we need to look at the economic side and lidars they are uh, still not there in a, in a price it's uh, too expensive it's too expensive and but he's also confident they can get there with only cameras again i'm not seeing 
internally their progress. I think it's possible. I don't know if it's really possible that uh, quickly as, as Musk wants, but it's exciting to see how it yeah. goes. So uh, there's another thing that Tesla is different. Like for Cruise and Waymo, all the all the development of self-driving tech for, yeah. and operations of their cars on the road are predominantly cost for them. Hmm. They spend money on it. In case of Tesla, they have sold more than a million, probably already, yeah. I don't know, maybe already it's two million. It was a million two years ago, I think. Cars right. which have this uh, hardware already inside and they can be updated over the air. Yeah. And they are using all this fleet to get the data to train yeah. new models. That the way they are doing is very smart. I like if you if you check their like autonomy days, how they are sharing. Mm -hmm. Like imagine one thing that I can I can say, like imagine they have a current autopilot basically working on a on a computer in the Tesla. They can have multiple new versions that they want to test. They mm -hmm. test it internally. They can uh, deploy all these versions yeah. on into the fleet and run this new uh, autopilot on in a parallel to the main one uh, and check the outcomes to see if, if they give the same output signals or not, the same decisions, and then compare. And if there's a difference, they send it back to, to headquarters yeah. to analyze to see why there was a difference with the current system mm. and which one is correct. Right. If you have this scale, uh, I mean, you can you can test this and advance this much more faster. So for them, all this fleet of millions of cars, yeah, it's like is not a cost. For them. They yeah. already sold it, right? Yeah, and got the money for it. Whereas Obviously, Waymo they, and Cruise are still spending money on just collecting the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's there's uh, even and and I mean. No, uh, the crews and Waymo they don't they can't have this scale right. the physical. But they obviously all they don't have do, enough cars. They all all of them do a lot of uh, testing in simulations, and that's great. But in the end, you need to actually test a lot in the real world. And I don't know, maybe they have a few thousand cars. It's still you can't compare with millions, right? Yeah. So it's it's different ways, and we'll see which one gets there first. I'm I'm myself personally very <laughs> bullish about Tesla. Yeah. Do you so, want to make a prediction on when you could just wake up, get in your car, no touching the wheel, get to work? I don't think it's... Let's say in California. Okay, but yeah, that's more specific yeah. because you need to uh, say where it is. Um, I think in at least about California, we can talk about this uh, maybe not on every road, but on a major part, maybe in five years we can do this. In five years it will become normal? In yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I would say, at least in the cities uh, yeah. where there's uh, good uh, roads and infrastructure, infrastructure, yeah, we will probably be able to see this. Okay, but it's it's important to keep in mind that this is this is actually the difference between level four and level five autonomy when we talk about it. Level four is that the system can drive as good as human, at least as good as human in certain, uh, it's called operational design domain, but basically, like, the simplest way is just imagine the area where it can do it. Yeah. Like, this area, like, this geographic area, and also, like, weather conditions and other stuff. So, in these conditions, this system can uh, work at least as good as human. Mm -hmm. That's level four. Level five is, like, when it 
you don't have these limitations. It yeah. can work everywhere on Earth as as good as human. as a human. So that's that's no. Uh, I mean, if if someone is trying to tell they are going to do level five, uh, it's actually strange for me because I think it's almost as as difficult as creating artificial general intelligence. Probably. Really? May, maybe not as much, but very very close to there so yeah because the the i mean imagine some really remote place with yeah. the, with the, like this extreme weather conditions yeah. and stuff if where you haven't tested yeah like you and you want something to drive there as good as human and the car this, hasn't this does not much, data from that type of experience this is much more it means that it needs to be generalizing yeah from the existing data yeah. as good as as human that's yeah. we've seen it only in in one being in this <laughs> universe that we know it's humans so right, right. Uh, i have i i think it's it's akin to hmm. artificial general intelligence. General intelligence. So, uh i wouldn't speak about level five that's that's very it's ways off uh, ways off but level four yeah i think mm. we'll see it okay pretty soon. well let's go back to robomart for just a second um I know you're building out a team. You guys raised a, a seed round, or was it a pre-seed round last year? We had pre-seed round, yeah. Okay, your pre-seed round. process of seed, yeah. After that, I remember you wrote that you're looking to build out a team in Armenia now of engineers. How did that go, and were you were you able to successfully find people? We have few engineers people? in Armenia, and uh, we have few open positions right now. Right now, for me, more most importantly, is the software engineering manager I want to hire. Yeah. So right now... Basically, I'm managing all the software and hardware, par hardware parts, and um, there's too much like architectural level things I need yeah. to be working on. So I think our software part is advanced enough for someone to, and, and it like uh, has enough, I would say, things that needs to be done there that we can have someone who can Start really managing. manage, lead the, the whole software team, and also grow it. Because yeah. we need to grow it. We even now have open positions, but I am focusing fully on getting this person. That this person then later can uh, hire himself or herself the uh, the engineers that we need to get there. And it's like almost all the software we have is like cloud, like web applications, mobile yeah. applications, except the software embedded software in RoboMart. So everything else like can we, be are, we are hiring someone who can who can manage this. Yeah, and because our uh, software team is mostly uh, in Armenia or, or in a closer time zones, I want to get someone there that uh, can lead the whole team. So yeah. For the software. Was it easy to convince your co-founders who are not Armenian that it's a good idea to build a team in Armenia? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, because we, we have already a few people and yeah. they've seen that it's really... So before great. you started building a team, there was a few people already on board? No, no. I mean, like we, we, when we started hiring the uh, few additional people... Uh, we hired a few people and yeah. then, I mean, it was obvious that they are doing a great job and we right. can get some great talent in Armenia also. Uh, and also it's uh, it's uh, obviously as a CTO, my, I would say that, that the easier it is for me to organize things. Yeah, It's also facts because I'm there very often and I want to be there more yeah. often. That's, I mean, something I want to do and I'm working towards that. So it will be much easier for me to interact with people. Yeah. It's not like it's going to be exclusively Armenia, no. Right, yeah, no. But, uh, but having a presence there. But having a presence, gathering the team, and also being close to it because yeah. I'm there uh, very often. So that's obviously also facts because it's making it easier to, to reach our goals.
Great. Let's wrap up by speaking about uh, about the state of science in Armenia. So you're one of the most vocal advocates for advancing research activity and funding for science in Armenia. Uh, you're a part of Gituj, which is an advocacy group that works towards that goal. What successes have you guys had since launching Gituj about a year ago now, right? Um, and what do you what do you have planned for the the coming years? I would say the number one success is that we were able to consolidate such a great and big group of people and organizations yeah. around this issue, mm-hmm. which is, and, and this, uh, the number of people and organizations, if you check, it's unprecedented to be consolidated around something. How many people and is it? We are more than 170 uh, founders and top managers, uh, mostly high tech, but not only companies and uh, 18 organizations uh, Mm -hmm. business unions foundations and also there's a union of schools yeah so this is uh, really unprecedented and this is i would say the first first thing that so many people were really interested in this and are vocal about it yeah that's already itself was an achievement but obviously uh, we need to see some progress and and we got uh, really good progress, I would say, last year. Mm-hmm. In a like nutshell, we can say we can see it in a budget of science, but obviously, uh, budget is not just just uh, money. It needs to be based on the programs that are going that are implemented. And there are several programs that have been implemented last year and also are being launched now. First time uh, in Armenia for the last 30 years, last year, uh, Science Committee launched, due to this increase of funding, grants for five years Hmm. for research grants, which was not there. It was shorter term grants before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It was mostly two years, but the the year before there were grants for three years, but five years, this is like really new. And two years for science is a very short amount of time. You you can't do anything uh, People like, and also with all the bureaucracy that there yeah. is uh, still, which also is a big problem, needs to be changed. People would <laughs> would start like project and then start like wrapping up. <laughs> start to, it's <laughs> not worth applying for the grant yeah. again. <laughs> and there are new programs being launched for for international scientists uh, who wanna either move to Armenia or start remotely building research groups in Armenia. And they are they are like I hope launching soon we yeah. are we are trying to help the science committee to basically spread the word about these programs so yeah. that more people apply mm-hmm. and they have better uh, competition and choose the the best ones i think last time i heard about it they have already like several dozens already inter- interested they haven't launched it yet but they already have interested people who are actually uh, filled in the survey that they're yeah. interested. And so these would be, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. these would be scientists from abroad who would advise, a, a, build out a group in Armenia that would be led by them from either by them moving to Armenia or doing it remotely? But there are two programs. One is like fellowships, which uh, which mandates basically the researcher to move to Armenia yeah. for five years and do the research there. Uh, there is another program which... Uh, which is uh, basically someone who's established scientists abroad and uh, they are becoming a PI, principal investigator, and they have a co-investigator in Armenia Mm. uh, and they're working with them remotely mostly, but maybe spending, I don't know, a month or two in Armenia working with them. Uh, I don't remember the exact requirements, but 
that's that's the idea uh so for these two programs in total i know there are several dozen i don't remember exactly yeah. what is the distribution and this is very important i am our approach in, in gitur i would say that this is great we just the problem is it is uh like few dozens that's like very small scale we we need to get into this with much higher ambition and mm. with much higher uh being much more vocal on the government level that we are starting this and we are going to do this anyway this is important because first of all it will spread the word yeah. much better it will instill more trust from people if if the government officials is are giving this like public uh basically promises and pledges but also people who are very really uh professionals and in a good environments right they have their uh working place they have their access to younger talent that join yeah. their their uh research groups when they move somewhere they look what's the environment there obviously the environment and, and by environment i don't mean like the buildings or or the interior of the of the office that's also important but um uh, more importantly i think is obviously also like the compensation is needs to be right. somehow competitive at least taking into account obviously local prices also but much more important i think is for them to understand who are their colleagues yeah what is the environment where they can brainstorm collaborate and also what are what is the access to like younger talent like younger generation who who are, are is there a lot of people who wants to become scientists like the more vocal we are the so i think we are going to first solve this issue that more young generation uh, people from young generation will decide to become scientists so these people who who think about moving to army will understand that okay so we are going to have access to a lot of young talent yeah because they also see right. there is changing something right there is going to be coming obviously not only just vocal they need to be programs also to make it more interesting for for youth to go but they themselves will understand okay if they are so vocal about it yeah. and there are a lot of people are going to go there if i don't have at least that environment now where i can talk a lot of it and collaborate and then brainstorm with with other scientists at least maybe in one two three years if i go now it will be there so okay. i want to be mistaken mm. by doing that so the more vocal the more ambitious we are in these programs we are going to have much uh, more interest from international scientists and from uh, from the local like youth to to choose scientific career. yeah so this is this is actually uh, like part of the equation obviously because this is just about the numbers which is important but it's also about in what fields are these scientists what mm-hmm. are what are their what they produce all this funding increase that happened last year was about it was the basic the budget of the science committee which is whose mandate is mostly in basic research not not exclusively but if you check their uh, the KPIs they are putting there or the uh, programs they are funding it's mostly basic research which means that uh it's just curiosity driven research yeah. and mostly the output is publications in highly rated uh, journals or conference or something i mean we we pushed in the sense for this we advocated for this uh, because we saw that if we don't do anything right now we are going to lose the last remnants of whatever we have yeah and it it is required like uh, immediate action that's mm-hmm. why we uh, were so focused last year on on this thing and on this uh, with this approach just increasing the funding for the specific programs that yeah. are there now 
the important part is that this is going to be just a waste of resources if we don't actually ask ourselves, okay, what are the needs for the country? Mm -hmm. What are our goals? What are the goals for, for Armenia? What goals we put there? And how we can, from that goals, come back and think, okay, which type of R&D we need to do? And specifically, like, uh, and, and I mean, if you look at other countries, they have obviously some funding for uh, some funding agencies for basic research, which is just funding the curiosity-driven research, right? But there's always other agencies. In one way to do it is if you have other ministries, like yeah. uh, let's say in case of U.S., like departments, right? which are responsible for solving tasks for the country in a specific area. I don't know. That's, that's DOD or yeah. agriculture or healthcare. or healthcare. Yeah. And they all have their separate internal budgets through some organs inside, some parts of their like team inside or, or through some other agencies uh, that are connected with them. They fund different programs to solve problems that these departments or several departments together or ministries together see. And this part is really lacking in Armenia. I mean, we don't have, besides high-tech industry ministry, which is, I would say, is failing at their job, but they have the uh, several areas where they have a budget for R&D, yeah. but they can't even spend this uh, properly, which is, uh, in, in our opinion, is, is their responsibility. They should do it. They, they basically failed at it last year and probably last few years because there is no leader for the, the committee that is responsible for the defense R&D. Mm-hmm. And last year, out of $9 million they had, they spent only four. On, our, on defense R&D? Yeah. And they just transferred the rest to some other lines in the budget and spent mm. on something else, which might be even closer to what, what is defense R&D, but the problem is that that was specifically allocated for defense, for defense R&D, R&D. And they didn't uh, invest this properly. Right. So, uh, and, 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 and we think that the... Number one reason problem there is there is no president for the committee which is responsible for this, and there was almost for the entire last two years there was no one there, just maybe a few months. The role just wasn't filled. Yeah, it's for the last two years. It's it's mostly Vacant. not filled. Yeah. Like for three months there was someone, even he was not performing well at it. It's a, it's surprising though because but, if the if the money has already been allocated, yeah, uh, why not find the projects to fund with it. I don't know. You you would yeah, hear a lot of people yeah. are saying that we have the money, we just don't have the projects. Uh, I don't think that's that's the case, to be honest. Uh, especially here, we know there's a huge need and maybe the regulations are the problem so that these uh, people who want to apply for these programs, they don't apply because mm. I don't know what are the requirements from the from the government side. There needs to be someone who is trying to understand what are the problems for the players who can apply for these programs and why aren't they applying? How we can like uh, listen to them and and change some things yeah. if necessary, because not everything is is right. Probably there yeah. like the requirements, and and again, this is an example for the defense. And there are other things, right? Right, like they have a ministry of economy. Like maybe some of the like let's say agriculture is is their responsibility. Where is a special R and D budget for agriculture? Yeah, which is specifically for solving our needs like right. we, we saw our government talking a lot about increasing the productivity of the labor right mm-hmm. in the country 
and part of it comes from the agriculture, obviously, right? Because it's a big part, uh, of, the part of the economy. Where are the specific like uh, grants for yeah. increasing this productivity in the agriculture? Yeah. Why don't they have a specific budget for that? Like R and D department in the in the Ministry of Economy. Yeah. Or we can go to other other places like uh, I don't know uh, Foreign Affairs Ministry. Why don't they have special budget for research in different fields? Let's say international relations study. That's part of yeah, it. Or political science. Uh, the let's say different topics regarding Artsakh. Yeah. Like uh, there there are unfriendly countries nearby. Let's say just very. Yeah. Uh, mildly, mildly, yeah, and uh, who are claiming that this is not not Armenian heritage? Right. Where is your response in the scientific uh, discussion, and then publication of literature? And... Because, like a lot of these people, when it comes to discussing, like uh, into uh, other uh, platforms, yeah. like political and other, they tend sometimes to refer to scientific right. communities. Right. Where is our response to this? Like right. really internationally competitive. Uh, publications about this topic that yeah. is uh, making sure that, that people know that this is really and yeah. then the truth is on, on our side in right. most of the cases right or so why is it so hard to yeah I'm glad you put an emphasis on social sciences as well because I think oftentimes when we talk about the needs of which sci- which areas of science and academic study really need a boost in Armenia we often focus on things like tech but I think social science and hu- pushing more into social science and humanities areas is also extremely important, especially for a country like Armenia. Yeah, I, I wanna I wanna just add here that um, there is this. Uh, I think people when hear R and D, yeah, they always think about STEM, right? And I used to think like that too, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but then when we were starting all this activity and started researching international literature about this. There is a uh, organization called OECD, which is mm-hmm. probably what like people know, and they have a special manual yeah. how you should collect. Uh, first of all, how you should um, different expenditures in in R and D, how you should like categorize them, yeah. and then collect this data and report it. So it's like yeah. when you are comparing different countries or different fields, you can you are sure you are comparing the same things, yeah. right? So and they have a lot of definitions there, and it, it probably was the first time I saw that when they are talking about R and D or research and development, right? They also include humanities, of social course, sciences, yeah. because you can do the same things there. Because mm-hmm. you also do research in so- social sciences, you also do research in humanities, right? And can there can be even developments because, yeah. like in in modern days, you have a lot of social technologies, right? Yeah. Uh, media technologies, a lot of which is caused like the. Uh, this is already like the applied part right. of. It's of, like communication studies or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. So you can have just curiosity-driven yeah. research there too, but you can also have the how you uh, do the research, seeing some potential application. Already, you create some technologies. Yeah. That you can apply to solve some problems. So when it comes to R and D, at least when we talk about it, we always uh, talk. Not only about STEM, but humanities and social sciences. Yeah. And I would say, in case of Armenia, it is definitely not less important than STEM. Maybe even more. Yeah. Though we can see here in the defense R&D, it's not as well as I described. But there, we have a huge gap. Yeah. And these are people from academia. People in our universities are also people who 
uh, set narratives, political narratives for the country. So I think not focusing on that um, would be a huge mistake. And honestly, I think without getting too political, I think it's a part of the reason why sometimes our political discourse is of such low quality in the country. So. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I want to add here that I mean we have we have still like uh, I think about half of our research community is in humanities and social yeah. sciences, but the quality is very low. Yeah, we still see and feel some kind of opposition from people in this part of the community on for change. But yeah. we need this change. And, of course, uh, the the discussion sometimes come to some like simple things like. Who is interested in our history or like things that are uh, about us? So uh, we we should not tend to publish in English. I mean, look, we need to talk about us to other course, people, yeah. right? Because we are not existing in yeah. vacuum. If we were like just one country yeah. uh, sitting on Mars and yeah. it's only us, uh, I mean, okay, maybe yeah. we can talk in Armenian and just write everything in Armenian. That's another thing. But we are not in vacuum. Yeah. We need to put this uh, discourse about our, our history, our heritage, about our culture, about our geography, about our yeah. internal relations, yeah. social issues and stuff. We need to start like really uh, doing internationally competitive research here. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't have really good new create new knowledge in Armenia. Mm -hmm. The question is how we measure it. Like how I am as a person who is... Or or not me. Let's forget about me. Someone who needs to, let's say, decide which project they need to fund. Yeah. If, let's say, that person is not an uh, expert in that field, how can they judge right. if this thing is competitive? They can't. If, yeah. if you don't have, uh, if, it, let's say, uh, we have only one or two or three people in Armenia who are yeah. telling they are experts in this field. Yeah. And they know each other, let's say, or they like each other or don't like. I mean, you need to have some kind of uh, statistical... Uh, Num big number yeah. that, that you can make sure that this system of peer review, mm -hmm. which is not science only thing, it's peer reviews everywhere. But the science was uh, science community managed to put this in um, in practice uh, in, in, in practice very well to to ha really m get a good quality and, yeah. and, and define what is good. I mean, this system is every as every system has flaws. Yeah, and we know uh, a lot of bad things about that. It's it's not working in, in many places, but there's nothing better. Yeah, yeah. So, but the question comes: Okay, we how do we define right now? What are our goals? What strategy we have to to achieve them? What is what actual budget are we allocating to this? And and we think that at least for uh, defense R and D, for Armenian studies, for AI for agriculture, for biotech, for space, we need to have some, some strategy either separately or in, in groups, in, in one or whatever, that will really outline like the timeline, how we are, yeah. what we are going to achieve, like specific budgets and targets. And, and we should start like really implementing that. We don't have it. Yeah. Some people refer us to check the government program for until 2026, but I don't know, maybe 20% or less of the points outlined there have some numbers next to them mm -hmm. so it's very hard to actually see what what's what are the targets right Tikan, our very last question i want you to tell us how you envision in the five to ten year time frame robomart and the state of science in armenia what's your wish for the next five to ten years we were discussing this internally with with co-founders about robomart yeah. so our vision is to get to a million robomarts 
operating. Wow. In five to 10 years? In 10, 10 years. 10 years. In 2030, let's say okay. that was our. So it's very bold, very ambitious, but uh, that's what we put uh, in front of us. In terms of science in Armenia, in five years, I think we need to, we need to really put some, some targets and start working towards that. Like, I think we, we need to put target of how many researchers we, we need in the country and uh, our uh, thinking in Vitur is that at least we need to have 50% more than now. What what do we have now? How many do we, have? we have about uh, 4,000, but to be honest, I don't... Uh, usually when... This is just the number of people. The problem here is that usually when international... Uh, even like in OECD I mentioned, right? When they talk about the number of researchers per million population, they talk about full-time equivalent. equivalent. So a lot of researchers in Armenia are working part-time. Mm. So if you go to full-time, it's going to be much less. Right. Full-time equivalent. So we need to have, at least for per million population, number of researchers need to grow at least 50%, we think. And I think it's uh, it's ambitious, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. We need to increase up to 1% of GDP, our public funding of R&D. That's, that's for sure. There is even maybe quicker, not, mm-hmm. not five years, like... 25 so three years mm-hmm. we need to get there and it's possible i mean we've, we've done the even calculations with the several ministries with the high-tech industry ministry with the science committee and if you start like if you put together even like the, some some strategies even in a, a very high level you can get to this number easily there, there needs to be obviously coming from these uh, strategies that are serving the needs of the of the country uh, you can devise already which fields of science are going to be priority for us. So there needs to be some number. Let's say 80% of the basic research funding needs to be going in this direction because yeah. that's going to be feeding our needs in that in that areas. Obviously, we need to have some uh, portion of funding more general because you never know what can right. come up. And that's the basically uh, essence of basic research. Mm-hmm why people invest in it, but there needs to be some priority fields. And also we need to have like longer goal. Like we know that there is some goals list for 2050. There are some numbers outlines there. Many of these numbers, if we actually say that, okay, these are the goals are based on the, uh, how you are going to advance your R and D infrastructure mm-hmm. capabilities. You can't reach these numbers if you don't advance your R and D in the rel- relevant right. fields. But there needs to be also some numbers there specifically about R&D that we need to get, let's say, top 15 countries, uh, innovative countries in the world. Let's let's put the ambitious goals and get there. Yeah. yeah. Like we were one of the leaders in the world uh, in uh, researchers per million population number. We need to get back there. We when lost, were we there? Uh, during the end of like Soviet Union times, mm. if we, if you think about Armenia as a separate country. Just the Soviet had, Republic of Armenia. We had like much bigger number, maybe about 10,000 researchers per million wow. population. Now it's 1,300. Wow. Or, or maybe 1,000. So we lost it dramatically. And now the leaders of the world have that number, right. about 10,000. Right. Like Israel is the first and they have 10. I think uh, South Korea has somewhere about seven or 8,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tikan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you um, I know Gituja is working on a lot right now, so I hope in the future you'll come back again and, sure. and give us those updates. Thank you yeah. so much, Tikan. Thanks. Thanks.